Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello. Now, I know this is meant to be a pub lock-in rather than a podcast about the news, and God knows I wish we were at the pub. I wish all of us were. But these are extraordinary times we're living through, and it's perverse to ignore that fact. So I wanted to record some off-script episodes which we'll be putting out alongside our regular chats. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. My guest today belongs to these difficult times. Sunetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University, so she knows what she's talking about when it comes to pandemics. One of the problems of the one we're trying to survive now is that management of our lives isn't in our own hands, or indeed in those of doctors and scientists. It's politicians who tell us what to do, and Professor Gupta and others like her think they're telling us the wrong thing. A few weeks ago, she and two other scientists published something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which argues that we should ditch nationwide lockdown for a policy of focus protection of those most at risk of death from COVID. Because she defied the line, she's been disgracefully treated, though hundreds and hundreds of doctors have come to her support. It's about six weeks ago that you published the Great Barrington Declaration. You were one of many signatories. Perhaps we should start by just going through what it says for anyone who doesn't know. The, the people who came together to um, compose it, I think, were motivated independently, of course. I think we were motivated uh, right at the outset by the collateral damage that we anticipated would occur as a result of some of the measures that were being taken to contain coronavirus. In other words, we um, felt that lockdowns were likely to cause enormous harm and have serious long-term effects. So right at the outset, so this was in earlier in this year, I think the three of us who composed this were in our own little corners thinking uh, this is a, not a proportionate uh, response to what is about to come. Has what you feared come to pass? Has some of this come to pass? It has. Yes. Um, so now, in fact, most of uh, our efforts are being directed at cataloguing 
that collateral damage. So we have a new initiative, a website called Collateral Global, and this is going to serve as an archive of this damage, um, obviously right now to, to motivate changes in policy, but also in the future for us to refer back to um, so that we consider very carefully whether lockdown is an appropriate tool. So that's really the backdrop. And I know a lot of the discussion um, around this has centred, you know, should we go for lockdown or should we go for what we advocate as essentially a solution to the problem of lockdown being a, a, a tool which has been described as blunt, but really it's worse than that. It's, it's an extremely harmful measure. Uh, so given the enormous harms that lockdown causes, and also the fact that lockdowns only delay the inevitable progress of coronavirus through a population, uh, what the Great Barrington Declaration proposes is a solution which um, is called focused protection. And that is where we focus our energies and attention on those who are vulnerable to death from coronavirus. So rather than restricting the spread of coronavirus, since we know now in some fine detail uh, which who is vulnerable to death, that we protect them and meanwhile allow the infection to spread, which has the benefit that we build up immunity in the population. This is known as herd immunity. It's come to acquire different kind of connotations. But if we build up enough herd immunity, enough population level immunity, the risk of infection to those who are vulnerable becomes low. And this is how we live with all the other coronaviruses, not to mention a whole kind of plethora of respiratory disease. So the solution that the Great Barrington Declaration proposes is to allow the infection to spread among those who are not at risk of death, uh, which does two things. It avoids lockdown and it allows for a life to resume normally for those who are vulnerable within the short period of time that it takes for enough immunity to build up so that we're back to where we are um, at now with other coronaviruses, for example. How long would that take, do you think? Well, that should only take about uh, three months, really, three to six months at the outside. And we say this from very basic epidemiological principles because we know what the duration of infection is for um, COVID the COVID-19 virus, and we have a rough idea of its um, transmissibility. So a very simple model will tell you that it takes you know, about eight weeks for the thing to peak and then die down. And, and we have seen now, we've had the benefit, if you can call it that, of observing this epidemic pass through parts of the world who, in countries where lockdown is, is, is simply not um, an affordable option. And, and th that is indeed, let's say, three months, six months on the outside, just to be safe, um, should be sufficient for this virus to, to establish a level of immunity that allows um, the risk to go down and for life to go back to normal. So if lockdown were ended tomorrow, you, you reckon that the, 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 the problem would be finished in three to six months? Well, hopefully we're much further along in the this process um, than many people believe or, or have chosen to believe. So um, actually there was a paper published 
just in the last few days in Italy, uh, where they looked at blood samples that were collected um, from last September. And you can see that the virus was present and went in various parts of the country, uh, actually peaked in February. And I've suspected that in many parts of the country, in, in the UK, that was also the case. Uh, lockdown obviously prevented it from spreading northwards, for example, which is why we now have a particular problem there. But I think we are much closer to getting to that stage, that point, where the risk starts to become low enough that vulnerable people are no more at risk of uh, dying from coronavirus than they are from flu um, or any of the other seasonal coronaviruses. Why do you think there was such a panic about this particular virus? I think that part of the panic was a sort of demonstration effect of what was happening in parts of Italy, for example, and um, the acute um, realisation that our health services, which have been underfunded for so long, that they wouldn't be able to cope if, if this sort of situation um, happened here. Uh, and then it cannot be denied also that this was fed by a sort of worst-case scenario mathematical model of um, what was likely to happen if the epidemic were left um, unchecked, to, to spread unchecked. So what do you make of how they dealt with it in Sweden? I think Sweden's policy was, was very reasonable in that, I guess what we're thinking about, I mean, what are the choices here? Um, there is this misconception that the Great Barrington Declaration suggests that we should let it rip, which is, of course, to let it uh, spread unfettered. Um, and then the lockdown uh, or anything anything that falls within that larger umbrella of lockdown um, tends to be a sort of let it drip policy. And you can argue endlessly about... Uh, so, so what we're advocating is to focus protection on those who are vulnerable. So that is actually the middle ground. That is not letting it rip by any means. And somehow the term herd immunity has become synonymous with let it rip. So what we are all seeking, of course, is to somehow establish the level of immunity that guarantees normal life and um, allow, which involves its spreading, um, without causing those deaths. So we're all seeking that middle ground. Focus protection provides that. And of course, part of any policy has been to focus protection on those who are vulnerable. Uh, and what Sweden did was try and do that, didn't succeed in every regard, and they'll be the first to admit that they could have done a lot more to shield the care homes. Um, but I think they tried to navigate between this, uh, some level of mitigation so that it didn't spread unchecked, but also not to a level where we were harming, they were harming people, particularly school children. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I think that what they did is much closer to what we would advocate. But it's, you know, standing up against the scientific establishment when everyone else is advocating a different approach, that's quite a gutsy thing to do. Why did you do it? Because I was absolutely um, terrified at the thought of what 
lockdowns would bring um, in this country and also internationally. I mean, I come from India. Um, the idea of asking someone in a slum to lock down, uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's unthinkable, really. So my, if you like, the, the images that flooded into my head when lockdown was proposed as a potential way of getting out of this mess were that of the child um, who lives in a toxic, dysfunctional household for whom school is the only means of escape, perhaps the only place where they get a proper meal. Um, so that, that child being suddenly told, no, you can't go to school, was, was an image that um, came straight to my head. And then, as I said, people being asked to lock down in the slums of India or in the townships in South Africa. I mean, and I had a strong feeling that India and South Africa particularly would head in that direction. And indeed, indeed they did. So right from the start, I felt that lockdown was going to cause more harm. I mean, significantly more harm than it would um, save lives. Uh, I also felt, and I often have felt, that some of the mathematical modelling, the forecasting that happens regularly when such a threat is imminent, is typically, you know, it is presents the worst case scenario. Whereas actually the data that we had at the point, that point in March for the UK permitted a whole range of different scenarios, including one where the epidemic was, you know, largely asymptomatic, had a very much lower infection fatality rate and had possibly already spread to some extent in the population. So what I tried to do in March is put out a paper that just laid out these different possibilities, emphasizing that what we really needed to do was try and find out how many people had already been exposed. That was to get a sense of what its actual infection fatality rate was. And also we immediately at that point set about trying to develop, get going uh, an antibody test that might provide this information. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get hold of the samples that we would have needed to have got hold of right at that point in time in order to make such an assessment. Um, and so now some of the antibody tests give you quite low measures. But what we've learned in, um, in the process of investigating the biology of this, the immunology of this virus is that antibody levels as such can decay very quickly in people. Uh, this does not mean that they've lost immunity. And furthermore, that a lot of the immunity towards this virus derives from various other arms of the immune system. So um, it's we still don't know. The jury is still out, I would say, on how many people are actually currently immune to this virus. Also, because we can acquire, we um, there's a considerable overlap in what is recognised by the immune system between this coronavirus and the other coronaviruses. So it's also possible, it's very likely, I'd say, that a proportion of the population is already immune or was already immune when the virus arrived. So, so when you were standing out against received wisdom, what was the response from the rest of the scientific world to you personally? It was quite vicious and continues to be. So even in March, when I was trying to play 
very neutrally. So just say, look, this is what the canonical kind of model epidemiological framework that everyone was using for this virus. This is what it says. You can take this model and fit it to the data under a variety of different assumptions. And what we I was just trying to emphasize that we needed to do the serological studies or whatever we could do to try and understand where we were at with, with this epidemic. And even then, even at that point, there was an enormous backlash of um, academics saying that our ideas were dangerous. And this um, intrigued me. I mean, well, dismayed me. This dismayed me considerably. Uh, but I still thought, all right, well, let's just wait for the data to come in. And perhaps I should have been more vocal then about my own um, intentions, because my motivations were really, came very much out of a sense that lockdown was a luxury of the middle classes, not to mention the, the affluent, um, and, and that it was going to be very detrimental to um, the poor and also, of course, the young. So that was where I was coming from, really, then. But I tried to be a bit more neutral at that point about lockdowns. And indeed, you know, to lock down for two weeks when you're faced with this enormous uncertainty is not entirely um, unreasonable. But to maintain what happened subsequently, I think, which then, of course, drew me out and, and caused me to become more vocal about what I think is the real problem, which is the collateral damage that is coming out of lockdown. Um, once I started to voice these opinions, of course, was met with even further criticism, uh, very much of an ad hominem nature, even from colleagues, uh, which is really disappointing. I mean, I would have thought that you'd expect them to say, okay, well, that's interesting, should we go and test it? Um, you know, including people in positions of great authority that I think rather than going on Twitter and uh, accusing me of being a puppet of libertarians, I would think that that energy would be better spent in um, trying to find out where, answer some of the scientific questions that I've been raising. So were you sort of harassed, bullied by, by other members of your profession? Well, I mean, there have been, of course, um, as I said, ad hominem remarks posted regularly on Twitter and in the media. The Guardian has particularly been very receptive to um, these uh, criticisms, which, again, I don't see them as being levelled um, always at just the science or the policy aspects of it. I mean, there are some arguments which are levelled at the science, which I can answer, which we have tried to answer. But there is a significant lack of, and there's an unwillingness to engage in a proper, frank and free debate. Some of your colleagues must have supported you. Oh, yes. No, I'm just saying it's, I mean, there, there are some colleagues who support me. And of course, there's a lot of support generally, which is one of the purposes of the Great Barrington Declaration, was to allow people to, um, you know, give them a forum for expressing or at least, or just discussing uh, alternative viewpoints. And we've received a, a very large level of support internationally. And again, from people that 
there, there's what, what's refreshing about this is that people have united, or maybe that's not the right word, but we've, there has been a coming together of people who believe that other alternative ideas need to be discussed. Uh, so that's gratifying. So I won't say that I'm uh, sitting here just sort of fending off uh, criticisms. I've had, I've felt uh, very, I mean, <laughs> there is something life affirming about knowing that people can come together and accept this challenge um, and accept the difficulties of holding a heterodox opinion. But it's also been disappointing how many colleagues have uh, also, even though they've supported me, have said that they cannot do so in public. And that's really very worrying. Do you think you've been censored? Uh, yes, well, we were actively censored. Google, I mean, that's been corrected, but um, as soon as uh, in the days after the Barrington proposal was put up, uh, Google um, didn't quite censor it, but there was some some way that what, what came up didn't, what's it called? No, it's shadow blocked or something like that. And Reddit censored it. And generally speaking, um, you know, that there are uh, occasions when well, certainly the BBC have certainly asked me on certain occasions not to mention it. So there was a definite... Um, why did they ask you not to mention it? <laughs> well, I asked them, why, did, why should I not mention it? And they said, well, people might not know what you're talking about. So oh. that was curious. So, yes, that, that there was an attempt, I think, to censor it. And generally speaking, I think that um, there are a lot of people who prefer not to engage with it because they see it as polarising. Um, and they they may well be right. But we do think that the Barrington Declaration or any, you know, again, that's an umbrella term for any kind of um, ideas about focusing protection and and veering away from lockdown uh, i think we think that those are actually the middle ground those suggestions or focused protection is by no means um, a recommendation to allow this virus to to um, spread unchecked in order to preserve the, the personal liberties that it may otherwise compromise. So that's not at all the point of it. The point is that we can prevent the harms of lockdown by um, directing our resources at protecting the vulnerable over that short period of time when um, population immunity builds up. And now, of course, with the vaccine in sight, that becomes even more of a, of a possibility that we can use the vaccine to protect the vulnerable um, while, meanwhile, building up naturally acquired immunity in the population. And, and the two would act synergistically, as they do to an extent with influenza, in keeping the death rate low. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Shunetra, it must have been very, very depressing to have aspersions cast on your credibility when all you were doing was advocating a different way of looking at the issue against the entire weight of the state. Can you just remind us, why it is that you have credibility on this subject? Why do I have credibility on this subject? Well, I've been uh, working in this area for a, a very long time. Uh, so I, um, of course, have a good deal of expertise in um, the theory of infectious diseases. But also um, that theory has been translated into, um, well, let me give you one example, that that theory has many public health implications, but one concrete example of how that theory has been translated um, is that we are now developing a universal flu vaccine, which is based on the results of a mathematical model that we developed, or I developed about 15 years ago. And that model suggested a new way of vaccinating against flu that would protect against all um, current and future strains. So Craig Thompson um, in my um, research group was hired seven years ago now to try and um, do the laboratory work to identify these bits of the flu virus that we could use in a vaccine, and which he did very successfully. And that's been patented and licensed by uh, an investor in the US who set up a company to develop it. So I guess you could say I have experience from the theoretical end right down to the practical end, right down to, uh, you know, the translation of basic science into um, a vaccine. So uh, I guess that's where my credibility would come from. We've also, of course, been working now for a while on coronavirus and um, have published a few papers. One of the ways that they rubbished you was to say that a lot of the signatures on that declaration were false. Are those signature numbers that we see today vetted and trustworthy? Well, I think so. I mean, they've, they've been vetted now and traced down um, the few signatures with the, the funny names to um, a, a certain disruptive journalist. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the, my main... Obviously, I haven't gone into... Well, someone else is vetting them, but 
I, I guess my response to all of that is, okay, we have 700,000 signatures as far as I think last time I looked, which I don't do much uh, very often. But so, you know, so what, what do you want to discount it by? Half? I mean, you know, let's put a discount. It's like noise in any data. So you have to figure out there must still be in there some fake signatures, surely. You know, how could anyone resist putting if you feel annoyed by the whole process? I guess there must be some still in there. But, you know, let's discount it then for the noise. But even if you discount it by a half, um, it's, it's still a sizable number. But also, you know, there are individuals who are actively supporting it who I think are not a real people. Surprised by the number of signatures you've gathered? Uh, no, I think there are, there is a lot of um, worry and discontent, uh, discontent, and you know the material damage done by lockdowns is well, by definition, it's palpable, and it's becoming more and more of a um, a palpable, recognisable phenomenon. I think what happened to give you know um, the other side, if you like, credit, is that that just wasn't perhaps visible to, or wasn't in, in their heads when they were making um, the, the, their calculations or, or recommendations. So it's almost as if, you know, there are different planes in which you can think about this. And the, if you just think on the plane of how many COVID-related deaths will be reduced by various lockdown measures, if you're just stuck in that on that plane, then of course you, you'll come up and say, well, what are you talking about? How can we do anything other than lockdown? And then, of course, we say, well, look, if you put, you know, you extend that plane, you say, look, there's another plane here, which is called focused protection. So if you have focused protection, those numbers could come down very, very quickly without, even if you don't go into lockdown. And then, obviously, you have to figure out where's the best, where's the optimum point in all of this. Um, but what's missing there is the costs of lockdown. That's got to be there. And unless that's in your vision, it's just not possible to come up with a sensible strategy. And so I would say the main our main goal in some senses is just to get that perspective there, to get that looming large cost of lockdown, get it to loom over the, that table where the map is laid out for this strategy. Lockdown costing us that focus protection wouldn't cost us in terms of the you know, damages to people's health and well-being. I mean, lockdown imposes is, is causing enormous economic damage, which will result in people losing their jobs, not being able to feed their children. Lockdown, I mean, internationally, we're talking about 130 million people starving to death as a result of these measures. So, and then of course there are costs to other healthcare systems. Um, the burden of, of obviously cancer is one that comes up regularly, mental health. And there is an argument that, oh, okay, well, if you controlled coronavirus, those deaths wouldn't occur. But that's um, not true. I think that to some extent, of course, it, the, the burden of coronavirus itself has interfered. But the extent to which it's interfered is dependent on what we on the level of lockdown. Whereas if we focus protection on those who are vulnerable, we'll have fewer deaths, so less of a burden on the healthcare system. And also our attitude towards how to manage the healthcare system would be different. We wouldn't 
cancel all um, operations or say, don't come in for your cancer screening. Sorry, your chemotherapy is suspended. If we had a more holistic view of um, you know, how we can intervene at this point to stop the overall deaths that, that will occur. Supposing herd immunity isn't achievable? Well, that's a very strong supposition because uh, so the reasons for that being levelled at us as a criticism um, I think are scientifically unsound. So first of all, you know, why would that be the case? Well, one possibility would be if you didn't make immune responses to this virus at all. Now, we know that to be firmly not true. Many studies, and since we've had it around for a while now, we know that we make strong immune responses to this virus, which lasts for at least six months, shall we say. So, OK, you've got immune responses. That's all very well. What if they decay quickly? And it's, and of course, what's been trotted out there is, oh, look, there are some people who've been reinfected. Now, first of all, if you look at how many people have been reinfected in the context of how many people have actually been infected at all, if you were to fit a distribution to that, you'd have to, you'd, it would take it to being beyond lifelong, the average duration. Having said that, I don't think the average duration of immunity to COVID is lifelong. Because if you look at the other seasonal coronaviruses, you do repeatedly, um, you know, you get reinfected regularly. So every three or four years you, you get reinfected, but asymptomatically. So then the question is, can you get herd immunity? Can you get enough immunity in the population, even if you are losing immunity all the time? And the answer is yes. A very simple model will tell you that you can do that. And this is why... Um, I've been using for this various analogies, and they, of course, you know, the problem with analogies is they get more complicated than the explanations themselves. But this morning, I came up with one which may be, um, may be useful, which is if you think of the number of people in a population who are married, so the proportion of the population that's married, that can stay the same whether or not divorce is illegal. Because if in the case where you can't get divorced, people stop being married when they die and become married when they get married. Um, and that's it. And that's a bit like the measles scenario. You get infected, you become immune, and then you only die. the population level of immunity can only drop when people who are immune die. In the case of COVID, it's a bit more um, like um, what we society we live in now, where people keep getting divorced and remarried. But you could still maintain the same level of people, or you can, in the population who are currently married. So that's how it is. It doesn't matter how quickly you lose immunity. You can still maintain a level of immunity in the population. And that is what happens for the other coronaviruses. And I would think that's a good baseline assumption for where we would head with this virus. Well, then why isn't it being discussed? That is where I say you tell me, because I do not understand why we are not being allowed to have a decent, proper, formal debate. I mean, it's all very well getting on radio and having a sort of a bit of a slanging match. It's very unsatisfactory and often results in people feeling um, really rather unhappy about how the questions have been dealt with on, on both sides. So what we need is, for example, the Royal Society to say, let's have 
a structured debate about this. Uh, we need the, you know, the Academy of Medical Sciences instead of their president posting a diatribe against the Great Barrington Declaration and accusing us of being libertarians. What we need, what would be much more reasonable is for the Academy of Sciences to say, let's have a debate. Let's have a civilised, moderated debate about this. And, that's and what, do you, what do you feel when you see a twerp like Matt Hancock standing up and opining on the future of a complicated bit of science like this? Well, I think I, <laughs> I was enjoined by Freddie Says to, to post a um, fairly strong comment about that in Unheard. So I did get my um, say there. I think it's really unfortunate. I don't understand how this can be happening. Um, I, I actually am, am flummoxed. But when you look at some areas of the country, it's quite clear that shielding um, the vulnerable isn't going to be viable, is it? It's as high. I mean, there are 30% in some areas. Of people who are vulnerable? Yes, according to some estimates. Well, yes, I think those estimates are, I mean, are not surprisingly on the the generous side but let's i mean i think it's very important though that that is the important question here so questions about herd immunity and long covid and all of those sort of more scientific medical questions i think can be answered easily the question about how do you actually enact how do you make is focus protection possible is a very valid question which of course needs to be answered not by me not that i haven't thought about it enough come back to that in a minute but also but what we need is a panel of experts who deliver who have the expertise in delivering that um, in that area so with focus protection i think it can be broken down into a set of components one is of course um, easy to address um, care homes infection control in hospitals and i think we're all agreed that should be done and to be done in a more sympathetic way than just shoving someone an elderly person into a room and saying they can't be seen, they can't see their relatives, which is incredibly cruel. So it has to be done in a much more nuanced way. And of course, some of these tests that are being developed now may, may indeed help in that regard. Then, of course, we come to, so we're all agreed, with that, community transmission, which is much harder, but a subset of that, a very large subset of that, is already part of the lockdown process. So there are grandparents who aren't able to see their grandchildren and that under a focused protection plan, that period would be reduced because, as I said, within three to six months, it would all have been over. So by now we wouldn't be worrying about can, well, what will Christmas look like. Um, so that's for those who have the privilege of living in an isolate, I mean, who grandparents who live on their own, I mean, apart from their grandchildren. Uh, then there's the issue of vulnerable people who reside within households. And that, of course, is, is much more difficult. Uh, but And that could require some form of evacuation of those vulnerables um, to a setting for, again, three to six months, which is harsh and difficult. And, you know, far be it from me to say that's um, just a very easy pat solution. But we have done it before. We have evacuated vulnerable people. I mean, we're so comfortable about using metaphors of war and, you know, language, bellicose uh, metaphors and language in this uh, when describing what's going on here. 
Um, so why not evacuate the vulnerable over a period of time? It doesn't seem to me completely outside, completely inhumane. There is also a horrible hypocrisy here where I hear people telling me, you know, those who wish to criticise or the way we're thinking, um, talk about multi-generational households. And first of all, I know that these are very same people with who were telling me the other day that they were going to vote for a particular party because they wanted to, they thought it would be better for their tax evasion um, plans. So it's very, very hypocritical that they suddenly pull out the multi-generational families as, as um, a category of um, the population that they're very concerned with. But also what's hypocritical is lockdown itself is very harmful to the group of people that form these multi-generational households. Um, because in lockdown, many of the members of these households were forced to go out to work as essential workers, even though they were vulnerable. So, and of course, it goes without saying that the effects of the economic um, disaster that is about to befall mm. us that that is going to be borne very much by these households where the families, the generations live together in so small a space that they cannot actually have grandma isolated as much as possible um, within the, the household itself. So I think, of course, there are all sorts of problems. And, you know, I wouldn't pretend to have all the solutions, but I do think even though there is a big problem there, that also needs to be put in the context of the problems caused by lockdown. What do you make of all the enthusiasm about vaccines? Well, I think um, vaccines are, are great, but I think the main purpose of these vaccines against a disease like COVID uh, would be to protect those who are vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, COVID is not like measles or mumps or rubella or all these childhood infections that give you lifelong immunity and which do kill children. So that's a whole other class of disease, diseases and infectious disease agents um, for which it's easy to develop vaccines because they naturally give you lifelong immunity. Uh, so mimicking that becomes much easier through vaccination. And so we have those vaccines and those need to be given to children to stop them from dying. And that's been fairly successful, except, of course, now there's been a huge disruption to that campaign, particularly in the developing countries, because of our response to COVID. Um, but then we have a whole other class of pathogens we live with, like these coronaviruses and influenza, where we do get reinfected regularly. Um, but typically, we don't suffer severe symptoms and die until we get old. Or in the case of flu, actually, if you are um, very young, um, or indeed some young people do do get flu very, very badly. Flu is very nasty compared to COVID in its endemic state. Uh, so with those pathogens, it's very hard to make vaccines that last give you lifelong protection because natural immunity doesn't. So what we have is a situation where we have vaccines, as we have for flu. They're very imperfect at the moment. But they protect those who are at risk of death and severe disease. But the rest of us keep getting reinfected, top up our natural immunity. And really what works here or 
creates the conditions that we have accepted as how it, the best it can be, is a combination of that naturally acquired immunity uh, and the vaccine. And I think that's where we should be aiming to head as soon as possible. So I'm, I'm very, very happy that these vaccines are proving to be efficacious. And I really hope that we can deploy them very you know, rapidly to protect the vulnerable. And in doing that, maybe you know, we could tailor them to, to, for, for that level of risk and not worry so much if they're safe enough to give to young people because you know, young people are not at risk of death and disease. Um, we have to acknowledge, I think this is going to be the next discussion, how can we integrate naturally acquired immunity and vaccine um, protection mm. in a plan that is, uh, you know, is better than the sum of its parts? Uh, I can't let you go without asking you when you think we, we could be back in the pub. Well, I think we should be back in the pub tomorrow where we should provide <laughs> focus protection for those who need it, many of whom would prefer that in the short term, especially, you know, those who have grandchildren in school or university or in uh, just starting jobs or who've just set up their own business. You know, most, um, I think many people, older people who need the protection are actually very keen to um, live their lives that way for a while, uh, just so that the young people don't and the poor do not shoulder the burden of this. We can't carry on um, with this luxury of protecting the middle classes while shoving the poor under the bus. Do we even know what lockdown is doing to us around the world? So we have a lot of reports um, globally of, of what's going on. What we need now is for those to be collated, curated and assembled um, and assessed correctly or rigorously, rather, uh, so that we can have on the table uh, a very clear picture of the precise harms of lockdown in terms of deaths, in terms of vaccinations missed, in terms of antiretroviral therapy that hasn't gone out to HIV-positive people. Um, you know, people are observing malnutrition occurring after 30 years in South Africa. Do you think history will look back on this episode in, in, in the human story? As an extraordinary panic fueled disaster um, where the affluent countries and affluent sectors of the population in um, various countries sought to protect themselves at the expense of the poor and at the expense of the younger generations and their futures. Thank you very much. There you are, Professor Sunetra Gupta, pilloried for daring to suggest there could be an alternative to putting the entire country under house arrest. What a long way we've come from George Orwell. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.